Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim. I'm your host, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, along with Brian Andrew Jasinski, Lauren Bettinson, David Beamer. Well, welcome back to everyone. As you can probably hear, we are still at our satellite locations for Shark and Minnow, just staying safe and say, staying social but distant. The world is starting to open up a little bit, um, but we are on the brink of fall. And so while we've had the good fortune to see one another, you know, safely from behind a mask over the last few weeks, a little bit, we are still working remotely. How's everyone doing? I'm doing well. I think the continued lovely weather we've had here in Cleveland has been certainly a benefit to getting through the, our days and our weeks in this in this time. Absolutely. David, what are you doing to stay sane during the continued work from home situation? Yeah, well, I just moved to a new place in downtown Cleveland. So I've just been enjoying long walks by the lake. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the colder weather that comes with fall and the layering of clothes. That's That's really what's been keeping me keeping me busy and excited. Lauren, what about you? Um, I recently broke out all of my fall candles, so super excited to have basically all of them lit. <laughs> Very comforting. It might be 85 degrees outside, but I'm definitely wearing a sweater, so I'm all for fall. She's ready. So are you a scented candle person or do you just like the kind of ambiance of having them all lit? Um, I have them both. I mean, I can't have like more than two scents going on. Otherwise, it's just chaos. So I have a couple of just plain ones that are just for ambiance. And they're just like LED candles. So not even real. But I have two nice fall cinnamon and apple and pumpkin spice scents. So. All right. An equal opportunity candle lighter. Lauren Bettinson, folks. Thanks for being with us today. We find ourselves recording just about a little over a month out from election day. And so we thought that we would talk a little bit about presidential campaigns and not in terms of how the campaign is run from a campaign strategy standpoint, but from a marketing standpoint. And looking back over the years and thinking about what kinds of marketing strategies have different candidates employed and why have they been successful? Why have they broken through the clutter? And what might that tell us about the way in which marketing can help politicians connect with their audiences? Clues from the past for the future. I know that each of our participants today have taken a look back through the archives to be able to discuss how these campaigns have unfolded over time. And I'd like to start with David, because David, I know you've been thinking a lot about this. What are some of the things that in your research you've discovered about political campaigns and the way that they've been structured to connect with audiences and voters. From the earliest days of the American Republic, political slogans have been used to motivate and convey mood or opinion. It's been a good connector for presidential candidates to the American public. And so the first place that I went with this was really just taking a deep dive into the word slogan. Actually, at its origins, it's a Gaelic word. Slurgerm, which actually means a clan's battle cry, which is quite fascinating. And then this was later adapted by William Sapphire to mean the definition that we have come to know and love today. So a brief message that crystallizes an idea, defines an issue, the best of which thrill, exhort, and inspire. That's what I really focus on today, the political slogans that throughout American politics since 1840, when slogans first became popularized, thrilled, exhorted, and inspired. So David, I was just wondering, you know, before there was this kind of wide adoption of political slogans, how were campaigns being run? Why do you think this came about? So around, around the time that slogans were being adopted, marketing really had begun to introduce 
slogans and taglines into traditional media like print. So it was something the American consumer was used to, a singular message that pulsed and evoked emotional response. So obviously it was a great way for politicians to start to like connect with voters on familiar territory to give them something that became somewhat of an earworm that forced them to have that recall to think of this candidate in a certain way. Can you talk about some of the slogans that as you were doing your research really stuck out to you? Earworm is a good place for us to jump from. I put together a list of the top three presidential candidate slogans that really stood out to me since 1840. And coming in at number three, a slogan that thrills and an earworm, as you mentioned, Hallie is Dwight D. Eisenhower's 1952 slogan, I Like Ike. So this one really intrigued me, not because of the traditional analysis that one might take when looking at messaging, but because it sort of defied what we know as a successful slogan. So a traditional effective slogan avoids alliteration like I Like Ike because it suggests an absence of content. But the the obvious pro is that it's really catchy. So really what made his slogan different was the execution and the thoughtfulness and by the way he launched it. So just to give a little bit of background on that, um, as we know, the introduction of radio and television really magnified the effectiveness of sound bites and really just memorable brief statements. So in his 1952 campaign, Eisenhower took full advantage of that. So just historical context here, after the kind of swing era with the influential songwriters like Sinatra, the beloved Irving Berlin wrote a campaign song. And then Walt Disney Studio actually made a television ad, which was the first campaign ad aired on TV. So it was really a minute-long spot in which this kind of like cute cartoon elephant just keep saying like, I like Ike. And so it was very catchy and it played on the idea of nostalgia a little bit, adults watching cartoons. And then it felt very thrilling, fun and playful, yet it implied a familiarity by calling the president by his nickname. So it really connected with audiences in that way. That's really interesting, you know, and I think that's something that different candidates play with in various degrees throughout their their tenure as candidates. Obviously, you know, we talk a lot about likability. There's certainly a gender-based skew to that, particularly with female candidates. They talk about likability, electability, and it's seen as a little bit of a gender bias, you know, that gets unfairly applied to female candidates. But likability of candidates, to the degree to which they position themselves as someone that you, you know, quote-unquote, want to go have a beer with, is something that you know we've seen through the ages and certainly by using a nickname rather than a formal name or a last name it definitely presents the candidate in that more kind of like buddy-ish way <laughs> so really interesting tactic along with the use of cartoons playing into nostalgia the warmth the comfort that comes with an accessible medium like animation really interesting kind of combination of elements there that you know hadn't been seen before I think also it makes it palatable in a, in a sense because politics as we all know you're inundated with so many facts opposing facts opposing opinions and then there's so many different layers of issues and any candidate in their platform comes into play so I, I do think when you're bringing in elements such as these pop cultural references it helps people to connect with that person like, like okay that I understand it, it's almost acts as a gateway to allow them to understand that the point of view of that candidate even more so. I think it's definitely really interesting because, you know, I think that a lot of presidents try to kind of um, activate themselves as that familiar person. So like you said, Hallie, it's very amicable 
to create a nickname for yourself and kind of campaign that way. It makes you seem more like a friend, more familiar, rather than the classic political presidential headline. And, you know, we've seen it both ways, right? You know, we've seen candidates that campaign using a nickname as a as a pro. We've also seen candidates refer to their adversaries via a nickname that they create for them and project onto them. And so that's obviously like a really interesting device. Words matter. And it's an interesting device that candidates are using both to their benefit and also, you know, as a combative sort of battle tool when it comes to the way that they position themselves in comparison to their rival on the campaign trail. So David, what else were you seeing when it comes to slogans? Anything else that really popped off the page for you? Yeah, so coming in at number two for me, a slogan that inspired President Reagan's 1984 slogan, it's morning again in America. So this really developed out of President Reagan's campaign for re-election when he aired a television commercial titled Prouder, Stronger, Better. But the commercial wasn't remembered for that tag. It was remembered for the notable phrase and slogan, it's morning again in America, which he later embraced. Just again, to place this slogan into context, the metaphor of it's morning again refers to the improved economic situation in the U.S. after the recession of the 1980s. So for the country at this time, this period indicated something very precious and new and the idea that there was hope on the horizon. And so in this, in this campaign commercial, he really supports this message by playing off of the, as, as you would, like the average person's really hopefulness. And both of those for people at the time are buying homes and getting married. So he, through narrative, really discusses how there's an improved home market and how more people than ever are getting married and that it's morning again in America, which again brings that idea of hopefulness. And it's definitely a softer approach to political slogan than we've than we've seen. Well, and what you were just talking about, David, it's a direct appeal to the baby boomer generation when you think about it, because that was the generation that through the 80s, they were the people getting married, they were the people buying homes, they were the people seeing economic prosperity and it was speaking directly to them and saying isn't this a beautiful moment to be American and don't you want to continue that so it played into this cycle of prosperity and really took ownership of it in a way that was really visual really thematic and really kind of like allowed that candidate to own the success in a way that, you know, voters associated with him and rewarded him for. As David, you said what was so, in a sense, ironically, you could describe it stark about that was the tonality shift. In a sense, a lot of political ads present a very aggressive approach to politics. And whereas this was, as Hallie said, very hopeful and empowering and taking a moment to to appreciate. You know, there was an appreciation to that ad. And I, and I think the tonality of that ad continues to inspire advertising today. You know, I think that was really laid the groundwork for, you know, everybody knows the, you know, this is Michigan ads. There's, there's an interesting connection between the two of those because it's more about these evocative words painting a picture in people's minds of, of what they want, where they want to be and how they want to feel. There is certainly something to be said about the boldness of that ad in its subtlety. I'd be really also curious to know over time, like who's more successful, Cam- you know, campaigners that run campaigns that are optimistic or 
more of a fear marketing message. What's the trend line there? Because we've seen both. And I think, you know, in my lifetime, I've seen a lot more sort of divisive ads that are sort of like pointing the finger at the other candidate. You know, it's sort of increased over time. But I wonder, are we at a moment where we're going to be, as, as an American public, more swayed by optimism? Or are we just so subject to kind of fear marketing that that's what is going to win out? And again, by looking back at the history, it may give us some clues into what, you know, what we're in for in, on the go forward. I don't know. What does the group think? I, I suppose what one interesting thought with that, Hallie, would be from what party you stand for or, or subscribe to, does the same fear tactic commercial speak to the different parties in, in different ways? Clearly they will. I feel like if that is if that fear tactic is being presented by the politician or the party that you are supporting, you see that as a moment to galvanize and to, yes, this is a problem and this person is going to be our savior, to be the one that's going to lift us from the situation, whatever it is that they're presenting. However, if quite the opposite, if you're on the other side of the party, it it also can create a further drive to be like, that is a reason why we need to vote on our side. I really think that one message is clearly going to speak to two different ears in very different ways, whereas that could prove very successful. But at the same time, I think it can also sway people, even if they're from that party, because because of the intensity and the almost the intent of that ad. And just looking back at the at the past past hundred years of, of slogans, the, the ones that have really risen to the top typically typically aren't attacking the opposition. They're typically messages of hope. If you look at JFK's 1960, it's a time for greatness. And then all the way to George H.W. Bush's, a kinder, gentler nation. I think slogans by nature have this positive swing that defies political lines and are more visionary statements for for the country and unity. So I think typically those are the slogans that are most memorable. All right, David, so we're all waiting with bated breath. So what is your number one pick? All right, so coming in at number one, a slogan that truly exhorts, and it stood out for me because of its relevancy and effectiveness, and it's Warren G. Harding's Return to Normalcy in 1920. And so this one really stuck out to me because it happened 100 years ago during during a very similar election time. The United States was coming out of a time right after World War I, And in addition to that, the country had just gone through the Spanish flu of 1918. And so the idea of returning to normalcy is something that we often find ourselves talking about. And it's definitely a phrase that has been popularized in American culture now. So I thought that that was really fascinating that as an extension of that, a hundred years ago, the same idea of a return to normalcy really popularized in America. And so as you can see, this slogan really plays off of the country's exhaustion and reminds them and encourages them that these challenged times aren't normal. Um, And in a way, this actually inspires hope. And it's almost an idea of redirection and realignment for the country. It's definitely very fitting. It's fascinating to hear that. I would imagine a big part of the reason you perhaps are reacting to that as, as the way you are is because of the reflection of exactly 100 years later. Here we are in 2020 approaching uh, another major election with so many of these same very similar issues 
happening around us. Here we are in the in the middle of a, of a global pandemic. When you look at that, do you can you see a lot of the similar threads in in terms of messaging that Harding shared? Absolutely. the The conversation really shifts from the idea of progression and vision to the idea of returning and reestablishing oneself as as a nation, as a normal nation. Um, so those themes really stuck out in Harding's 1920 campaign, and I think that they are sticking out in 2020 um, in the current election. Absolutely, absolutely. It just shows, you know, so many people are change averse. You know, they're afraid of what they don't know. And so even if the past was not perfect, there are people that are willing to kind of have somewhat of a return because it's familiar. And it's amazing how that works in the campaigns that, you know, that you've spoken about. Yeah, I think I think through each campaign, there's this there's this idea of returning to what's familiar or just really playing off of that idea that as citizens of a country, we really we desire this normalcy. We desire that that morning as the sun rises, waking up, grabbing coffee and being in our comfortable homes. So I think I think that thread is really pulled through the most successful campaigns. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that comfort plays such an important role in, you know, a politician's campaign, just because they might not be super familiar to you, but if they can provide you comfort and, you know, they're basically running the place. So you want to trust someone, you want to have that figure of authority that's there to comfort you and provide that normalcy, if you will. Um, so it's definitely, definitely an interesting tactic. It goes back to what we said earlier, that sense of security, that sense of, of understanding, you know, understanding that it's going to be okay. And, and that's really what we're gets to the core of, you know, how people react to these messages and how is this candidate going to bring this to me or secure this this normalcy for me and this understanding and this feeling of safety, you know, it, it, they truly become like the, the principal of your school, right? You want, you want that person to know that that person is understands the issues at hand and is there to fix things when they're not right. It, it goes back at such an elementary statement, but it really goes back to that, that sense of security. What's somewhat inconvenient about that, okay. however, is that while it does work as a slogan, it doesn't really ladder up to a lot of the promises that are made on the campaign trail as far as how big pesky problems are going to be solved through a new strategic approach of an incoming administration. And so when you talk about how do we how do we solve or address or confront things like climate change, like a global pandemic, which many are predicting won't be the last of its kind if we do nothing to kind of change the way we're living. These kinds of big issues that have largely been contributed to by the way that we have been living as normal, it makes it a lot harder for candidates to say, yes, return to normalcy, and also here's how we're going to address these kinds of things in new divergent ways. So it's it's really a, a delicate dance when you start employing that kind of strategy in a slogan in a in a political brand. How do you return to something while also creating that new morning in America, right? That is certainly the challenge of the party that is campaigning against an incumbent president has because they need to be able to present those those new ideas show how their strategy is a better strategy whilst not having people feel like oh gosh everything's going to be completely 
completely different. And that's, I, I think, a great point, Hallie. Like that's such the fine line that in particular, the marketing and the messaging for that challenger has to be crafted with. Hallie, to your point, as a political slogan, the idea of returning to normal and normalcy can can be dangerous because normal is defined by one individual and their normal may not be the, the normal that is a, a vision for the future of the country. It may just be reverting rather than progressing. Normal is not always good. I think that's the problem. And that's, you know, something that's been popularized during this pandemic, you know, is that are we really hoping for a return to what we have before? Or is this the moment where we have the ability to build on that and create a better future? So again, you know, it does play into people's psyches about I don't like, you know, I don't like the idea of diverting from normal. I don't like the idea of living in a world that isn't comfortable because I can predict how things are going to work or behave. You know, it's it's a it's unfamiliar territory. I mean, it's a place that not many people are comfortable in. But, you know, those of us that work in the strategic world or anything innovation based, this is where we thrive. We love the idea of improvement and, and forging ahead and doing things different and better. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that personally gets me excited is like, how do we iterate? How do we make this? How do we make this better? And how do we make it better for more people? But, you know, it certainly is not a successful winning strategy politically to tell people like, hey, we're going to change everything and you're not going to even recognize the country, but it's going to be better for everyone. You know, people just that gets them too far out of their comfort zone. So it's a delicate dance to, to kind of navigate for sure. Definitely. And this is actually a really interesting segue into the Obama campaign poster, because originally that slogan was the word progress. And then they obviously changed it to hope because progress tends to have that kind of negative connotation. You know, the idea of moving away from something versus the word hope is a much more trusting word, you know, you're desiring something. So even just that single word change is like a perfect example of this discussion. And what a, almost a frightening concept that the the idea of the word progress being ne- negative, seen as a negative thing. That's that speaks to what you know Hallie was saying with the idea of people you know fearful of of something changing and, and of there being different ideas and of there being a different way of doing things and a different way of thinking. So in a sense, that word hope, it paints that that picture of progress can still happen. And, and that's the idea of hope, you know, that you're, you're, you're hoping for something better, but the psychology, as we said, of, of a single word, and what that what that creates in someone's mind, the perception of what's created in their mind. It's also scientific in terms of, of from the word that's used, the colors that are used, how intense, how busy an image is, you know, that all of these things play into the psych the psyche of, of how people are interacting when they see these political materials. So Lauren, you, you brought up the iconic hope poster for the Obama campaign that is associated with what it can be considered an iconic campaign. It was a, it was a very historic campaign. What are some of the things that you learned, further items that you've learned behind that poster and, and what that meant to that particular campaign? Well, one thing that I thought was pretty interesting is just actually about the artist himself, Shepard Ferry. He was known well before this campaign took off for his overtly political work that often showed criticism through like caricature styles and everything like that. Because of this connotation of his work, he really struggled with the idea of getting behind Obama's campaign because he didn't want his negative previous 
work to apply to this campaign. So he actually really fought with himself and different campaign managers about whether or not he should be the one to do it. But he obviously turned it around. He made it positive. And I think it was just because of the different style that he approached it with. You know, he still had his his touch on it through color and the different icon style. I think what you're saying is his ability to pivot his style almost represents a I don't want to say that he was make, you know, going to a place of neutrality, but it's he was separating what in a sense was a product for this campaign versus what could be considered his personal, more activist-driven work that he had created in advance of the Hope poster. Yes, exactly, exactly. I also thought it was pretty interesting, just the idea of the classical pose that was used in it. So Ferry went through and scoured many, many photos of Obama throughout different conferences and everything and in conventions. And he found the one pose that actually replicated John F. Kennedy's pose, a very iconic three-quarter view pose, um, which is, you know, where the subject is not turned directly facing the camera, but kind of eyes gazing upward to the side. And even just that looking away, you know, not directly at the, the viewer, if you will, through the poster, looking up and, you know, kind of in the future just shows that, again, idea of progressiveness and vision. I think also there was a sense of approachability. It almost gave you the sense that it felt conversational. There wasn't a sense of an untouchable icon. There was an approachability in terms of that style of, as you said, the pose, the gaze. It's kind of brought to the level of the, of the people that are wanting to listen to what his platform is and it doesn't feel untouchable in a sense and unattainable. Definitely. It made him feel immediately established, very familiar and still American and presidential because you were able to see that connection to the JFK campaign. On the topic of accessibility, I think it's just really interesting to think about the employment of Shepard Ferry, who is a street artist. He is American, but he's done work all over the world. Really divergent, very specific style, and very recognizable style. And you've utilized him to create this campaign for a political candidate, you know, at the highest level of politics and American politics. And it was just such a stunning contrast to the Republican campaign that was being run at that time by John McCain and Sarah Palin, it just made you think so differently about the candidates. They couldn't visually be more different, both as human beings, but also just in the way that they were presenting themselves to the American public. It was so high art and pop culture and youthful. It was just such a stark contrast. It was truly nothing we'd ever seen. No, no, never. You know, when you think about the role of design in these campaigns, I think that that is such a great example of what you can do that still puts the candidate front and forward, but through the embodiment of like a strong visual language makes you feel so differently about this candidate, even versus other candidates of his own party that had come before him. And I think, too, that that has to do kind of with the audience. Obama's campaign was really trying to appeal to that younger, progressive audience. And he wanted his art to convey that genuine meaning. And I learned that Obama's campaign was actually, he was the first president to effectively use the internet and social media for his successful political outcomes. So I think that by hiring this well-known street artist, it kind of appealed to the audience and it immediately took off on social media. Thousands of posters were sold, hundreds of thousands of posters, stickers. So it just was a really smart way of getting 
his campaign out there and recognized and immediately like known. Absolutely. I mean, I remember to your point, Lauren, the, the use of social media at the time um, being a new tool in the arsenal of a candidate in a campaign for, for the president of the United States. There was a call to, you know, you would sign up or you would follow you know, his campaign and you would get one of these stickers or these limited edition screen prints sent to you. You know, so he, there was definitely that idea of the marriage of, of art and commerce and social media really came together at the perfect moment for him. And in that message that he was creating and that was central to his campaign and central to, as you said, to the audience he was reaching out to. So it really was an incredible combination of, of both the technology, the choice of the artist, and the reach that he was able to attain through social media. Definitely. Appealing to that new audience of younger progressive voters, as well as the classic, you know, the classic pose brings in that older audience with the more classical views. So he kind of really reached everyone in a sense. Well, you know, Lauren, it's, it's fascinating as you talk about Obama campaign using modern technology and, and things like Facebook and Twitter to reach out to the public and a mass electorate. Really, according to historian Robert Dalek, he was saying, if you look at the successful presidential campaign since Kennedy uh, in 1960, you can see the maps that he charted that candidate after candidate takes that inspiration from, no matter their political party or what their personal style is. There is truly that roadmap was drawn from the campaign of 1960 of Kennedy versus Nixon. And they, there may be variations on those tactics that he innovated in 1960, but you can certainly see, you know, what they're doing is it's truly a, a page from his playbook. When Kennedy was running for the president of the United States in 1960, when anybody thinks, you know, when not any of us think of the Kennedy administration, I don't think there's any denying that there's there's a mythology that, you know, the historical state of that, that slice of political history has taken on. If we take ourselves back to the 1960 election campaign, it was dominated by the rising Cold War tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. And right before 1960, in 1957, the Soviets had launched Sputnik, the first man-made satellite to orbit Earth. So American leaders were warning the nation that we were, as a nation, falling behind and communist countries were leading us in science and technology. So there was certainly this sense of, as we spoke to earlier, where is the innovation and the increase in innovation? Three years earlier in 1960, the year of the election, an American U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet territory and that the pilot was captured and that incident led to the cancellation of Eisenhower's uh, trip to Moscow and the collapse of a summit meeting with Khrushchev. So suddenly this sense of the defeat of communism became central to the campaign of 1960. Enter Senator John F. Kennedy, and the criticism behind his campaign was he would be the youngest candidate to become the president. The positives of this new figure in the political landscape is he was this young, dynamic war hero. He was handsome. He would be the first Roman Catholic as a president, which was something different. All of these factors around JFK were considered fresh and new. And, the, and his campaign utilized those factors, and, and they presented his potential administration as the new frontier. David, you mentioned it earlier. There were three main campaign taglines he was using, uh, a time for greatness, as you mentioned, and then 
much, connect, as we said earlier, connecting to the playbook Obama used, very bold, iconic statements, like a new leader for the 60s, leadership for the 60s, and using that three-quarter pose, those really bright fields of, of red, white, and blue against a very stark black and white, almost newspaper-style image of him. You know, there was definitely a that through that starkness, it felt fresh. It was, you know, it was the beginning of the 1960s. And I think much like Obama, he was reaching out to this new younger generation that were entering the world of politics and and being the, the American people that were in the people that would vote for him. What I think is really interesting about that, Brian, is both Kennedy and Obama, when you look at where their presidencies began, and when their campaigning began, they were sort of predicting trends that actually did come to materialize in terms of American activism. In both generations, large social movements coming on the heels of both of their presidencies for for different reasons. Um, But they could feel that rising energy in a largely youthful population. And they played right into it. And they were, you know, again, rewarded politically for it. Absolutely. It comes again to that under that sense of understanding. Uh, They're not a political figure. We spoke to earlier that risk of it's not going to be business as usual, like there are going to be innovations in the way that I lead, and there's going to be new thinking in the way that I lead. And you tapping into those movements, you know, as you said, right on the heel of, of those movements that are swelling, it's truly leads to, to the success of those campaigns. This is a, an interesting thing to think about when, again, when we put ourselves in the frame of 1960. In 1960, 88% of households had televisions. Just 10 years before that, in 1950, only 11% had a television. Kennedy realized the power of the medium of TV, which had really never been used in a political campaign. And it it created this powerful new platform for the first time. And through TV appearances and commercials and news reports today, they obviously they continue to act as a key weapon per se for a candidate to not only present and defend their platforms, but as we said earlier, it's almost like a type of cannon, if you will, that they used to um, take aim at their opponents. But Kennedy saw the importance and the potential that TV had as a political platform. When he challenged Nixon to debate, Eisenhower had urged Nixon to decline. There's no reason, you know, TV debate, that's, that's, doesn't have its place in politics. Meanwhile, you know, JFK, once Nixon agreed to the first televised presidential debate, in the days before the debate, JFK himself met with the producers. He discussed the design of the set. He discussed what, where are the placement of the cameras. He and his team worked knowing like if he were to wear a blue suit and a, a lighter tone of the blue shirt, it would appear sharply focused against the gray set. And in addition, he wore makeup, you know, where Nixon he came in, he was not only didn't see the potential that this platform had, he didn't feel the need to wear makeup. He was actually fresh out of the hospital from a, a knee surgery. He wore a gray suit. So he appeared on camera in that grainy black and white as looking a bit disheveled and unkept. And you know, JFK having done that research about camera angle, and you know, Lauren, that goes back to that pose, that three-quarter pose we talked about, knew his angles and he knew to look at the camera. To you know, that's always a strange feeling if there's not a crowd there, you know, you're speaking to a camera, but he knew that he was eye to eye speaking to the people. Whereas Nixon, he was only looking at JFK and more in a debate style of a conversation. So the 
all of those issues that surrounded JFK in experience and he's not mature enough that it faded instantly based on this one television debate. He suddenly was looking like somebody who was presidential and he was poised and he deserved to have that opportunity to sit in that in, in the seat of the president of the United States. So just knowing that the power of that medium that was there and studies do show that there were 4 million voters who made up their minds as a result of that first debate and approximately 3 million of the from those 4 million people ended up voting for Kennedy. Nixon quickly learned the power of that medium and in subsequent debates he was more poised, more relaxed, you know there was much more of that polished production value. So it really was the the birth of the power of presenting oneself. You're basically an entertainer. You know, that's really I feel like that that first conversion of entertainment and politics began to take stage. Brian, just as you mentioned, the sheer power of the medium that you mentioned being those television debates. And it's it's really crazy when you look at the election results. Kennedy won the popular vote 49.7% to 49.5%. And polls revealed that half of the voters had been influenced by the dubbed great debates. And 6%, which ultimately made the huge difference, claimed that the debates alone had decided their choice. Brian, as you as you mentioned, the historical importance of television and media and the and the growing coverage of political campaigns through through television and now social media and its intertwinement with the idea of populism, really relating to the general public, person to person, and bringing about these ideas. And how do you guys see that playing out now in the current landscape with President Donald Trump? So I think Trump had a really interesting advantage coming into a presidential campaign in the sense that he was somebody who throughout the 1980s, because of what he did as a business person, you know, had a lot of experience with TV, was on TV, kind of saw himself as a pop culture figure, was used to working with the media and had done it himself you know, directly and not through a team for so long that I think he had a different relationship with all media, but with TV in particular, that he's really employed in a, in a significant way over the time that he campaigned. And then, of course, as he's been in the White House, it's interesting. It's just a completely different relationship with the media. You can see it through the way that he has had a reoccurring conversation with outlets like Fox News, which as of late, he's kind of moving away from and there's a little bit of friction there. Um, But he also, you know, is no stranger to developing media properties of his own, you know, whether it's The Apprentice or the books that he's written, he understands what it means to build a media brand. And so that's a big part of what he's done through campaigning through the last campaign that he ran. And then also I see it playing out with the current campaign he's running. My prediction is based on some of the things that he said recently, if he doesn't win as the incumbent candidate, I think we're going to see a lot more from him when it comes to TV. I could see him establishing his own media channel or properties. I I don't think that he's going to go quietly if he doesn't win. So it's interesting to see how embedded his relationship is with TV. And as a result, like the direct communication that he has with his constituents and the American people as a whole. 
in some ways, it's kind of the modern and much more persistent version of FDR's fireside chats. You know, he was coming into people's living rooms, speaking directly to Americans. And with Trump, he has decided, you know, he doesn't want to appear to be a scripted, in no way, shape or form, a scripted politician. He wants to speak directly to the American public. And I think that that's a key reason why his constituents like him, that they feel like they're getting the uncensored version. It is this raw positioning of his feelings, you know, and like it or not, he has been very successful as a result of it. It's in some ways ironic because he's kind of taking a page out of the current social media book as well, as far as we've all seen the trends on video consumption, the type of video consumption habits that that users have right now, namely the rise of a lesser produced, a low fidelity product, the way that that mixes in with high fidelity video, this user generated content, you know, he really likes that rawness. And that's been a big kind of differentiator for him as a candidate versus some of the other candidates. And he's very successful at it because of this relationship that he's had with the media for now going on three, four decades. So my prediction is that's going to be something that in the next debate that's happening, and actually by the time we air this, that may have happened here in Cleveland this week. But that's going to be something that we see, you know, as a stark contrast between him and Joe Biden. You know, no question, you know, Joe Biden has struggled a little bit when it comes to TV. And Donald Trump has been positioning that as an issue with age and cognitive abilities. But the reality is that Donald Trump just has so much more experience working the media that, you know, even though Joe Biden has been vice president and has been in politics for a long time, his one-on-one interaction with the media is very different. So, you know, when you come to the question of marketing and how you're positioned, you know, it's just a very different level of comfort when addressing the American public through that particular marketing channel. And I think what he does, Hallie, is he has the advantage that he came out of the gate, as you said, because of this near 40 years of experience as in his place in the public as a persona, he didn't have to invest that time in having the public get to know him or understand who he was as a candidate or, or who he was as a person. That character and that persona was already prepackaged. Many people were already subscribers to that. So and, and then he was able to use that to spin the new point oh version of Donald Trump, the candidate, you know, so it was really a lot of what you saw of him on The Apprentice, for example, but now in a quote unquote real world situation, you know, he's like, I'm going to take that brash, direct, no nonsense persona that you fell in love with on The Apprentice. And now I'm going to apply it to things that will actually affect you. And I think that is a very strong tactic that he continues to employ with people. It really is that persona that they're connecting to that, as you said, that no nonsense going to just brass tax it as it is. It is interesting because, you know, obviously in The Apprentice, he built this public brand of a successful businessman. And obviously there's there's a lot of discussion about how successful his businesses actually are. And so, you know, as a voter, I think a lot of people are confused. Is what I see on TV actually reality or is what I'm hearing by whistleblowers? the reality about the success of his business, the profitability, the running, the mission, vision, values, you know, and so I think a lot of people, again, where does the line between entertainment and reality begin to blur and what's actual facts? It does make it very complex when you layer that into a political campaign. 
Another great example of somebody really using TV to their benefit is if you think back to the 1992 presidential campaign with Bill Clinton, we got to really get to know him in terms of his personal interests, in terms of things that actually allowed us to connect to him on that personal level. The iconic moment of him taking his saxophone and playing on the Arsenio Hall show and really spending a large portion of that interview talking about his daughter and how he felt bad being away from Chelsea so much on the campaign trail. It saw us to really see a different side of him and it was a great way to show don't tell. So many candidates try and tell us who they are, tell us you know about their values, but getting out there and really having like the visual prop of that saxophone, that's something that really sticks in people's minds, much like, you know, where we started the conversation and what David was talking about with slogans. It's a really good way to, you know, in the world of marketing, we talk about recall. It's a great way to have voters recall you as a candidate and then tie that to what they know about your values and what you stand for, you know, but you have that key visual to kind of pair with that, you know, in in your memory. The other thing that really stood out to me about his campaign was the way in which the second time around in 96, he successfully used the MTV association with Rock the Vote to his benefit. And much like him, candidates following him, you know, continued to go on MTV. And that was a really influential force with younger voters through the better part of the 90s and early 2000s, having on, you know, every candidate. But I remember, you know, I remember seeing Bill Clinton there. I remember seeing Obama there talking about what they stood for in a more casual setting and letting voters that really represented that younger, more progressive population, ask them questions and and have that more conversational interaction with them. And so it, it is interesting to see how, you know, media plays into the marketing or the branding of a candidate and how they use that either successfully or Brian, as you point out in the case of Nixon, you know, they, they don't take enough stock in that. I think it's hard to argue with the fact that every presidential candidate now, you know, you just don't have a choice. You have to be able to know how to navigate, of course, TV, but now, you know, the complex landscape that is social media. We're going to see that play out in the next month here in the final phases of campaign 2020. It'll be something really unusual to watch. This is a highly unusual campaign for a lot of reasons, not least of which is that it's happening in the midst of a pandemic. The campaign trail obviously looks different. The debate will look different. The the voting will look different. You know, everything, nothing is the same. But one of the most stunning differences between this year and other years is the fact that while we've all been in our homes, we have been largely consuming media at a more rapid pace. And that means that with the whole conversation, whether you've watched it or not, you know, with the documentary Social Dilemma, a lot of what was presented in that documentary is not news to the to us that work in the industry. But a lot of people are now learning, oh my goodness, like, you know, what I'm getting served up on some of these media portals and properties is really, you know, based on an algorithm that may not be completely unbiased. So we're consuming a lot more media, a lot more of that media is skewed towards our particular feelings on politics. And, you know, we're really in a position where, you know, because of this heightened media consumption, we're going to have to really sort through what's fact and fiction. And and it's going to be a much more vast world of information that we're that we're looking through than ever before. So final thoughts. Hallie, I think that's an excellent point. As we are in the final, literally in the final days of this election, you know, in this past year where everything has had to pivot from organizations to businesses to schools to the way that the workforce behaves and reacts. Much like all of those things, the 
presidential election of 2020 has found itself in a place where reaching out to people literally in these debates, in these campaigns, in these arenas has been something that's been taken away. And so the power of the messaging and the power of the marketing and the power of the campaign and its initiatives for each of the, of the campaigns has needed to take on a whole different view of strategy, unlike any that's been presented in the past because of the elections and campaigns are all about those those crowds and those gatherings and and the fact that they've had to do without in a sense you know I think we've all seen it you know both the Republican convention as well as the Democratic convention there was a strange silence to them there was a strange quiet tone to them that didn't feel as momentous and and I think that's been a big challenge of, of both of these campaigns that we're witnessing but I, I do think it just speaks to as you know all of these campaigns that we've talked about have all been affected through the lens of the the time and the events that are swirling around them both from a world perspective a political perspective and a national perspective at the time like any campaign it needs to be able to react in real time and that's what we've witnessed throughout the pandemic throughout the months even leading up to the pandemic and that's what's really made this for an election and a campaign that like none we've ever seen before This episode, My Bigger Vote, goes to the nonprofit group Plan Your Vote. Plan Your Vote is a 2020 visual arts initiative from vote.org that harnesses the power of art to promote and encourages citizens to exercise their right to vote. So what Plan Your Vote is, 60 artists have joined forces with some of America's most prestigious museums and galleries for what they're calling an urgent new social media project. So visual artists, musical artists such as Patti Smith, Derek Adams, Michael Stipe, and Sally Mann are partnering with institutions such as the Guggenheim and the New Museum, creating these pieces that are emblazoned with messaging that are directing and urging people to plan their vote. So Plan Your Vote aims to empower Americans to own their voting rights, to provide accurate, up-to-date voting registration details uh, for all states, as well as mail-in and absentee voting information, polling locations, and deadlines. What's really great is the Public Library of Voting Advocacy Artworks is actually available to view, and anyone is actually able to download and post their own artwork. And you can do this at planyourvote.org. This episode, My Bigger Vote, goes out to the notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is remembered and honored today as she is laid to rest, and may her legacy continue to live on as we participate in the election this year and vote to continue the fight for equal rights. Connecting to the conversation we had today, My Bigger Vote goes to Facebook and Instagram for integrating a register to vote sticker into their stories. As we talked about accessibility and reaching audiences in new ways, this has really encouraged many people to vote and reminded us all that your vote is your voice. This episode of Open Swim is in support of the League of Women Voters. For a hundred years, they've been a nonpartisan activist grassroots organization that believes voters should play a critical role in democracy. They believe in the power of women to create a more perfect democracy. For more information, visit lwv.org. 
Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Tacone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.